Well, good morning. For those of you who were expecting Jared Gilcher up here this morning, we've decided to trade in poised and articulate for big and loud. And that's what you get with me. So welcome, and we're glad you're here. We are glad you're here and uh, glad you're with us. We have been in the book of Titus, studying that for, uh, for quite a while now, and, and Jared has taken us through quite a bit of that, and we are going to continue, and we read the scripture today um, with that. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Titus. We'll be in chapter 1, and we will get started here soon. Now, I was an engineer in college, so I never had one of those fancy liberal arts degrees where you learned a lot of, uh, of fancy things and, and cultural things. So I'm going to quote Charles Dickens here and his, his, his famous opening lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of darkness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair. Dickens was describing in his novel the Revolutionary War going on in France and the characters in France and England uh, at that time. And sometimes I feel like we've got a lot going on in our world today, that there is such a change going about. I think just technologically, and what we have seen in the past 20, 30 years, how we have seen transportation, communication especially, all of these things have just exploded in ways that we were uh, totally not doing before. Now, a lot of good has happened with that. I think it's, it's amazing that we can send the word of God around the world in a split second. Lickety split, technological term. But we can send it around the globe. I think it's pretty amazing how we don't have to get on horseback and travel around to hit different congregations or different people. We have access through, through the internet. We have access through airline travel, through just driving our own cars. It's pretty amazing the change that has been occurring. And it's also pretty amazing how that technology has been used. Because, see, we like to use it for good, and I know it was planned for good, but at the same time, it's used for some evil as well. So there are preachers that you can find on television, preachers you can find on the Internet. If you go to YouTube and, and look at some things, you can get some teaching that's just wrong. The false teachers abound out there, and they're everywhere. And they, they no longer have to come to your church to have an ear. They come through a wire into your home. And they come through books. Publishers today, even Christian publishers, will publish just about anything. And these teachings get into our ears and into our minds. And we have to be aware. At the same time, there's been a huge, and this is what's been dramatic, cultural shift. We have seen such a change in our own country just in the last 10 years and how our culture has shifted significantly. Just this past week, uh, there was a national report of some 13 and 14-year-old students who were supposed to be confirmed in the Methodist Church, but because the, the Methodist General Assembly or, or their governing body would not support the, the homosexual and transgender rights issues, they decided they did not want to become members. And when they announced that, the congregation applauded them, the pastor applauded them. We have a cultural shift going on. You read in Scripture where it talks about good being called evil and evil being called good. We're seeing that before our very eyes. This is very real. And it's right before us. We live in a culture where personality has more street cred than character. That's what we look for in people. We don't look for that godly character. Our moral norms are, are being swept away. There, there's no quest for truth anymore, only seekers of pleasure. And this flies in the face 
of Christ and the Holy Scriptures. And churches aren't immune from the moral decline uh, in any way from this. Now, the Church of Jesus Christ has had to battle cultures throughout the years, throughout the ages. This is not new. So what has changed? What has changed, I think, is just the technology and the advent of social media that the culture can now put pressures on us like they never could before. And so we don't need to worry about this because even though this technology is new, Jesus Christ saw this coming for his church. He knew that this would be happening and he set about a solution for us. He knew that there would be something that we could do and and you're probably wondering what that is. Is it, is it a, a new app for the phone that will detect false teaching and help you learn right doctrine? That would be cool, but that's not it. His solution to deal with, to counter false teaching, is the same thing he's been doing for 2,000 years. It's not complex. In fact, you, we look at it and go, this, are, are you serious, Jesus? Is this what you want to do? He wants to use elders in the church to counter this false doctrine. That is what he has put forward. The elders are his solution. Jesus wants to set up in every congregation biblically qualified elders so that they can counter the false teachers. I'm going to read the text again, starting in verse 5. It says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might... Put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now we need to pay attention to this part because it says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Why? Verse 10, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, we have spent several weeks, and Jared has taken us through the qualifications for elders. He called it shepherds in the trenches, the biblical resume for elders, or something like that. And he went into great detail explaining what these qualifications were, 15 qualifications for elders, and how important it was that that we have biblically qualified and godly elders The next seven verses explain to us why it is so important to have elders that meet those qualifications. Verse 10 begins with the word for. You could read this as because or since. In other words, Paul is saying, let me explain now why this is necessary. Paul is going to tell us. And the gist of his argument is, elders must guard the flock by refuting false teachers and by correcting any believers who have followed false teaching. But all of these qualifications that have been listed, we're going to see them stand in stark contrast to the Cretans. We're going to learn a little bit more about Crete and the Cretans who were there. But 
you're going to see a contrast that is drawn. Now, there are two types of false teachers that we need to deal with. There's the ones who are teaching the false uh, doctrines, and then there are the, the believers who are falling for it, the ones who are listening to them and taking what they say and believing it. And we need to deal with both of them. But before we get to that, before we dive into the text, I want to give you some background on Crete and the Cretans who lived there. So the island of Crete is at the south end of the Aegean Sea. It's kind of, if you kind of think of it, between Turkey and Greece over here and all those little spattering of islands in between. It's about 162 miles long, 37 miles at its widest, about 100 miles from mainland Greece is where it exists. It had a heyday. You have to go all the way back to about 1800 B.C., to 1550 BC. That's about the time that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. So while the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, the Cretans on the island of Crete were in their heyday. And I mean, it was a heyday. They had chosen, instead of expanding their power by military conquest, as a lot of nations did, they did it by economic power. So they were strategically placed to have a lot of trade. And they did. And they became wealthy there. They had built some incredible palaces on the island of Crete that are beautiful. They even did something called bull vaulting. And we have the the, the paintings where they would run and they would jump over bulls and like over the horns of the bulls as some sort of sport, some sort of contest. They had a written language. Unfortunately, we don't know what it means. We can't read it yet. It's undecipherable yet. It's called Linear A. And it was a syllabic language. So we had the pictographs, if you think of those from ancient Egypt. Pictures mean different words or actions. Syllabic means all the different syllables get their own symbol. So if you think about it, you know, ah, ba, ka, da, all of those would have their own things. And you have to do all the other syllables that are possible. So it, it predates the alphabetic languages. But still, it was a written language and unfortunately still undecipherable. And there was a king, King Mina, who lived there. And if you remember the story, the Greek mythology of the Minotaur? Anybody remember that? The Minoans. All right, Nick. But the Minoans uh, were on there, and that's from the Minotaur. And so the Minotaur was the half bull, half man thing that lived in the maze, and they had to offer sacrifices every nine years uh, and to it. And then finally someone came in there and killed it and and so on and so forth. That's on the island of Crete. That's where this all takes place. And this is during the heyday of of the island of Crete. But in about 1600 BC, a huge volcano exploded about 70 miles to the north on the island of Santorini. Santorini. And it caused this huge tsunami that came and pretty much wiped out the northern coast of Crete. So tidal wave came and and they never really recovered from that. And they were conquered about 50 years later by the Mycenaeans. And they came in. The Mycenaeans are famous from the Trojan War, the Trojan Horse. Those are the Greeks came in and conquered. Now, why is all this important? Because this history all plays in to who the Cretans were. And we need to understand that because we're, Paul and Titus are dealing with a people on this island that are fairly unique in their belief system fairly unique in how they behave. So their moral values and the way they think. And we need to understand that. And that's part of what Paul is going to get to. Now, they believed in all the Greek gods and goddesses, but they believed they were men and women who rose to deity through their service and good works to man. So you're already going to see a contrast. Their deity started out as human and became God's. Paul is introducing Jesus Christ, who was God, who became human. So we're going to see this contrast come into play, but they need to understand who they were, and they believe that most of the gods were born on the island of Crete, including Zeus, who was the, the, the king god, and they believed he was also buried there. So their god was buried. And uh, so that, that's going to bring some of the problems that they have. Because this was so ingrained in the culture that the young churches that were, integrated, that were integrating their understanding of Christ with their understanding of Zeus. And you see, Zeus 
was not a good guy. He loved to seduce women. He lied, cheated, did whatever he could to get his way. So Zeus isn't a good person or good God in any way. But the Cretans decided to mimic him. They were going to do and live like Zeus had lived, so they said. He was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. And it's, under, it's important for us to understand, again, their thinking and their morals that, that they were doing, that they had, I should say. So Paul wanted to show that Jesus is not at all like Zeus. In fact, in verse 2, Paul wrote, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The hope of eternal life is dependent on a God who does not lie, so he can be trusted to carry out his redemptive promises. So unfortunately, the Cretans had centuries and centuries of Greek mythology, and it had greatly influenced their culture. They were such liars, self-indulgent, sexual, sexually promiscuous peoples that the word Cretan was basically used to describe any who behaved like that. The, the Greek had a word for it, uh, kretizo, in other words, a Cretan. And so you called somebody a Cretan, you were calling them a liar. So that's the culture of Crete. If you were a people there, you were not thought of highly. And so this is the world that has happened here that they've come into. And the men weren't just liars, they were also violent, often acting as mercenaries. And the Cretan women were no better. They were what was called the new Roman woman. So what they did is they shrugged off getting married and their regular household responsibilities and duties so that they could be sexually permissive and self-indulgent, just like the men. By the way, men, that's, a, that's important for us to learn. People will follow our example. When the men were acting like pigs, the women didn't say, hey, you need to straighten up and act right. Instead, they said, we're going to act like pigs too. And the, the whole culture came down about that. But yet, by the grace of God, Cretans were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And they heard Peter preach his sermon. And the gospel was brought back to Crete and small churches were established. However, they resembled the local Cretan culture more than they uh, represented uh, the transformed lives of a follower of Jesus Christ. So when was Paul there? If you read the book of Acts, it never talks about him going to Crete except he was on a ship that stopped in Crete port on its way. So there's an early church father called Clement of Rome who had some writings, and he said that there was a fourth missionary journey that wasn't recorded in Acts, where Paul did go to Crete, and Paul was establishing churches there, and Titus was with him. And that's when he left him behind, and that is how we get the, the book of Titus. So now, finally... Let's get into the text a little bit. I'm going to read again verses 10 and 11. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. So Paul is telling them, you've got to deal with these false teachers. And how do you deal with them? You don't let them speak. In fact, this word, be silenced, could, could be read, be muzzled. You need to muzzle these speakers. And how do you muzzle the speakers? You don't give them a platform to teach or to preach. If we were to apply that here to Christ's community, we, we wouldn't put them in the pulpit. We wouldn't let them lead home group. We wouldn't let them lead youth group. We wouldn't let them teach our children. We would give them no platform. We would say, They're not allowed to teach or preach at all. We must silence them and must muzzle them. And that sounds, I know, in our culture a little harsh. Because as Americans, don't we value dialogue? There's a problem with the word dialogue, though. Dialogue has the sense of, you can change my mind. They're not changing our mind. 
we are going to stick to Scripture. We're going to strict stick to the to the uh, sound doctrine, and we are not going to give uh, a voice to the false teachers. Now, Paul tells him, "Don't let them speak." And by the way, this is not anything new because Timothy, when he was left at Ephesus at the church there, Paul says to him as well. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So let's be clear about false teaching. It is heresy. It's teaching something contrary to the teachings of Christ. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 1, false prophets also arose, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you and fall, uh, with false words, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So you can see the false teachers are equated with heresy. They're heretics. They're teaching contrary to the teachings of Christ. And did you see what happens here? Peter mentions it here. What happens when that goes on in the church? People then, on the outside, look at the church, they look at the Christians, and they say, you're not living up to what you, what you say. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And they blaspheme the name of God because of us. When we don't silence, when we don't muzzle false teachers, heretics, people blaspheme the name of God. So we must do what Scripture says. It's very serious business. And as we will see... False teaching or heresy always damages people. Therefore, it must be stopped. And we must silence those who teach in error. This is, the, uh, this, part, this is part of spiritual leadership. Elders are called to silence false teachers. Remember the qualifications for elders? They must hold fast to the faithful word. They must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and rebuke those who teach false doctrine. Here we see why. There are many who, who will teach false doctrine. Do you get that in Scripture? Many who will teach false doctrine. False teachers will always be a problem for the church in any age, in any place. This is why you want your elders to be on guard for the truth. Unfortunately, in many churches around the country and, and around the world, elders are relegated to an administrative role. They're not about the spiritual role that Elders are called to be. Elders are called to be the shepherds. Elders are called to be the watchdogs. Elders are the ones who are supposed to be guarding against false teachers. But when we burden our elders with administrative tasks, things that aren't the role of elders, then this task doesn't get done. And this is the role of everybody in the congregation. That we must protect the time of our elders so that they are doing studying of the word, teaching the word, and have time to rebuke false doctrine and get people on the straight path. And so this is a, a charge not only for the elders, but to make sure that, that the people in the church aren't expecting the elders to be doing tasks that they really don't need to be doing. I remember in Pennsylvania, I grew up in a small Presbyterian church in a small coal mining town came time to get a new pastor and one of the concerns from the people were that he needed to be able to fire the coal furnace to, to provide heat for the church. And so he had to be responsible for all the coal in the coal bin and know how to fire a furnace. And I remember we got this young man in, great guy, loved the guy, and he would be just covered in coal dust all the time because he had no idea how to fire a coal furnace. 
He had no idea how to do this, but, but he tried, and, and time was taken away from him, from the study of scriptures, from prayer, from the things he should have been doing as a pastor, elder, shepherd, to do these other things. Now, that, that doesn't mean that heeding the church is a bad thing or even a lesser thing. It's a different thing. We need people to heat the church. We need people to shovel the, the walks. By the way, that was something else. Make sure he shovels the sidewalks when it snows. Um, we need people to do that. It's, it's absolutely necessary. But don't take away time from, from the elders studying the word and preparing to have them do those tasks. And that's what scripture actually uh, provides a way, provides a solution for that provides a, a way for us to have deacons who serve the church, serve the body. And, and we have some great servants in this body who are not deacons, but serve all the time constantly and do a great job. And it's absolutely necessary. That doesn't mean that the, the role of the elder, the pastor, the shepherd is of greater, more importance. It means it's different. They're all important. But we have people, we have men who are qualified for the role of elder, and we need to protect that position of elder. All, now, here's a question. I guess, are all of the false teachers that are mentioned unregenerate sinners? Now, the text tells us all the false teachers uh, can be unsaved people who attend church or people who are saved inside the church. So the elder's job is to protect both. So if we have a believer in here, say a young believer, and they're hearing a false teacher, and like I said, you can hear a false teacher about anywhere these days. You can hear false teachers on the radio, uh, from uh, you know, YouTube. You can see them on television. You can read blogs. Uh, they're all over the place. How do we protect our people? Because those young believers, those immature believers, are often the targets of the false teachers. And so we want to protect them, we want to help them, we want to help guard them, but at the same time, we care about the false teacher. And we need to be able to rebuke them, hopefully bring them into the truth. But we care about both of them. This passage tells us that they are, the false teachers are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. They do not submit to any authority, let alone the authority of Scripture. They're rebellious. This is, by the way, a telltale sign of a false teacher, namely a defiant attitude towards the authority of God's word or to the authority to God's servants. So beware of teachers who will not put themselves under authority. Now, even as elders here at Christ Community Bible Church, we're under the authority of our fellow elders. Now, this isn't a bad thing at all. This is a gloriously good thing. It is something that we love and that we welcome. Because I know that my fellow elders have my back. If I start getting off track, they will be there to correct me and to get me back on track again. False teachers, however, will not submit to authority. In fact, if you try to correct them, if you try to rebuke them, they're going to bolt for the door. They're going to be gone because they will not submit to any human authority or even to the authority of Scripture. They are an authority unto themselves. And we must be careful they're empty talkers or idle talkers. What they speak is not edifying to the body of Christ. Their message is not from Scripture and is often in opposition to the gospel of grace we have in Christ. Their words are without authority and without power. They bring up myths. They bring up stories. One of the things that they used to like to do in this time is look at some of these Apocrypha, or the Apocrypha are the additional books that we don't include in Scripture, but were, were very common at the time, very well known. Or the Pseudofigra, other books as well. They tell fanciful stories. And so they, they talk about these myths. Nothing edifying. Finally, they are deceivers, and this is the product of their empty talk. Don't think that empty words will lead to nowhere. It'll lead to falsehood. It'll lead to deceit. Though they are empty talkers, they are quite articulate and, and impressive. They are able to deceive. They excel at talking, not necessarily doing. They claim to be teaching truth, but are in fact just spreading lies. 
And do not think that they will be easy to spot. They are very good at what they do. They are very nice people who are very interested in the church. They'll be involved. They'll be faithful attenders. Okay, what did you just hear? Faithful attenders. I don't need anybody skipping church just to prove you're not a false teacher. All right? You need to be showing up to church. But they'll be faithful attenders. They'll be involved in church. People will like them. And they're looking for their prey. They may begin by offering to have a Bible study with you. Sounds harmless. But they are in it for some sort of gain. It doesn't necessarily have to be financial. It could be prestige or influence. But they are in it for shameful gain of some sort. And Paul adds they are from the circumcision party. That just means they're Jewish. A few verses later, Paul warns about Jewish myths. So it seems that they were either adding some Old Testament Judaism to the salvation message or they were getting into some strange mythical Jewish teachings, or perhaps both. In Acts 15, at the Jerusalem Council, there's a discussion as to whether people are saved by grace alone, apart from keeping the Jewish laws, or did Gentiles first have to become Jewish to then become Christian? And the Jerusalem Council came down very firm and said that Jew or Gentile doesn't matter, you're saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. So, how else do we silence uh, false teachers? First, by teaching sound doctrine. Sound doctrine means healthy doctrine. It leads to healthy spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. If it does not confront sin, it is not sound doctrine. If it just feeds curiosity, such as dwelling on just, let's say, the end times or something like that, we see a lot of that today. It's not sound doctrine. Sound doctrine must include the whole counsel of God. And it leads to healthy fear of God and to a holy living. We also silence false teaching by exposing it and refuting it when we hear it or see it. And this just doesn't apply to what's preached on Sunday mornings, although it certainly applies to Sunday mornings. I read about a pastor who was away from his church, from his congregation, and they brought in a guest pastor. And the guest pastor came in and he preached something that was a little false and it upset some of the people. So when the senior pastor returned, he was told, hey, this guy who was in the pulpit taught something he shouldn't have taught. What did he do? He actually wrote a letter to the, to the guy who gave the, the bad teaching, refuting what he had said, but he also shared that letter with his congregation. The congregation needed to know, we will address false teaching. We will be affirm about it. We will rebuke it, and we will hold people accountable. That's not something we see. We feel like we have to be tolerant, but we aren't tolerant of that. So the elders must confront all false teaching. Sometimes even it comes in the, in the form of a book or a popular book. I remember a conversation with a dear friend of mine, known she and her husband for, oh, 25 plus years now. And she liked a certain book that came out a little while ago. Is a piece of fiction that portrayed God in a certain way. And I told her, I said, that book has a lot of errors in it. It has bad doctrine. You really shouldn't be reading that book. And she said, oh, no, no, you don't get it. It's just a fiction book. It, it's, it's, it's not a doctrinal book. We're not, nobody's getting doctrine out of it. It's just, it's a good story. And that's why I like it. And I said, well, what do you like about the story? And she said, well, I like the way it portrays God. And I said, well, there you go. That's doctrine. That's false teaching. You shouldn't be putting that into your mind, into your brain. And you see, this is insidious. These are books that are sold at the, at the Christian bookstores, put out by so-called Christian publishers. We need to be very discerning of this. False teaching gets into our, into our brains in many ways, and we need to be very, very aware of that. So I'm going to take a quick excursion here to give you an idea of the anatomy of a successful heresy. And you're like, what? A successful heresy? No, it's a bad thing. A successful heresy means it got away with something it shouldn't have. And what does that look like? Because I want you to see that a successful heresy is insidious. It'll sneak up on you. There are a couple characteristics of a good heresy. And we need to be looking out for them. Number one, 
A good, that is, successful heresy starts in the church. It's not going to start necessarily at some seminary or in the halls of academia or in the halls of government because if it starts there, we're not even going to give them an ear. They're not going to reach the ears of our people that way. It's going to start in the church and we have to be careful of that. Number two, if you're going to be a successful heretic, they're going to defend some legitimate doctrine. Something we would all agree to. And they're going to defend it vehemently. And we'd be all on board like, yes, we agree. We're, we, we will defend that doctrine with you. However, they're going to have to twist or do something to some other doctrine to defend it in the way they want to. And that's where they insert their false teaching. And number three, they're going to use Scripture to do this. A good heretic is going to use the thing that we hold up. And they're going to pull verses out of here, and they're going to pull passages out of here, and they're going to convince you that what they're saying is correct. You see, I told you this is insidious. If you don't know the Scriptures, you could fall for it. I want to give you an example. Well, some of the things, uh, let me give you some examples of some some common heresies we're going to see over and over again. One is always questioning the deity of Christ. Started millennia ago, and it will continue on. Somebody will question the deity of Christ. Number two, they will question salvation by grace alone. They're always going to add something to salvation. Can't be by grace alone. They've got the answer, that extra ingredient, the secret to the Christian life. They're going to give you the other thing that you need for salvation. And I remember this was the most common answer we heard when, I don't know how many years ago it was, when we did evangelism explosion and we go to the campus of UTA and you had your diagnostic questions that you would ask people, you know, if you die today and, you know, stand before the gates of heaven, God was there and said, why, would I, why should I let you in? What would you tell them? And you'd get their answer. And overwhelmingly, the answer was, I'm a good person. I've done more good than bad. That, that's extremely common, and, and that's a heresy that you're going to see over and over again. It's not salvation by grace alone. There's something you need to do, something you need to add to it. And finally, another one, a third one. There, there are more than these three, but these are the top three I picked. The authority of Scripture will be questioned. So they will attack Scripture up and down, and if they can discredit this, then they can discredit whatever they want to discredit because that's the only source that we have. But let me give you the, a real-life example from history of a great heretic because he was successful. In the early 4th fourth, uh, early fourth century, that would be in the early 300s, a presbyter or elder or pastor from Alexandria began teaching a heresy from the pulpit. Like I said, it begins in the church. Moreover, that Pastor Arius, he was articulate and he was a great composer of little ditties. And so what he would do is he would put his heresies to a little catchy tune. And people could memorize that catchy tune and they could memorize his heresies. And he was very effective. Arianism spread. So what was his heresy? Well, first we need to look at what doctrine was he trying to defend? Remember? A good heretic is always going to defend uh, doctrine. For him, it was he was going to defend monotheism. And he was defending it against the heresy of modalism. Now, we would be all on board with that. We are monotheists, and we are not modalists. Monotheists, one God, yes. We say one God, three persons, but one God. Modalism says, yeah, one God, but one person. And sometimes that one person looks like God the Father. Sometimes it looks like God the Son. And sometimes it looks like God the Holy Spirit. But it's just one person in the Godhead, not three persons of the Godhead. That's what modalism is. And we would stand with Arius and say, yes, we agree. Monotheists, not modalists. However, he uh, took it a little further than he should have. So... 
to defend monotheism while avoiding modalism, he taught that Christ was a created being. In other words, Christ the Son did not possess the same eternality of the Father. And remember what I told you the third part was? He's going to use scripture. So Arius would point to a couple passages. There was more than two. But he would point to the Old Testament, Proverbs 8.22, which is personifying wisdom. And it says that wisdom is the first creation of God. And we'd go, yeah, I'm all on board with that. I can agree with that. But then he would look at 1 Corinthians 124, it says, Christ is the wisdom of God. And he said, oh, Christ is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is the first creation of God. Therefore, Christ must have been created. And he would also look at John 3.16. It says, the only begotten son. Well, begotten must mean created. And that's what Arius was teaching. And his teaching took off. It would be more than a century before it would get stamped down enough but it still hasn't died out. There are still airiness today. It goes on. So this actually led to uh, the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Nicaea, they had to come together and, and decide and come out and say, begotten does not mean that created. And it says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. And then they use this fancy Greek word, but one of the same essence of the God. Jesus is fully God, always has been, always will be. Meanwhile, let's go uh, move on with the text. Verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So about 600 B.C., a poet named uh, 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 Epimenides, who's from the island of Crete, wrote a poem about his fellow Cretans because they claimed that Zeus was buried on Crete. Now Epimenides, being a good Greek pagan, argued that Zeus couldn't die. So he railed against his fellow Cretans, calling them liars. But do you see the paradox here? A Cretan says all Cretans are liars. That's like getting a piece of paper on one side that says the statement on the other side is true. Flip it over, it says the statement on the other side is false. And you can't make sense of that. It's called the, the Epimenides Paradox. He wasn't trying to create a paradox. He was a poet. He was using hyperbole. And he was railing against his fellow Cretans, saying they're liars because he believes Zeus is alive. Now it gets even trickier here. Because Paul comes out and says, this statement is true. Now, we bring this up for a couple of reasons. Number one, people have looked at that and said, is Paul saying that Zeus didn't die? No. Paul's not saying that. Paul is simply agreeing with this statement, which is hyperbole, but generally speaking, Cretans are liars. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's who they are. That's what Paul's agreeing with. But today, you can go on the internet and, and people will be calling this a contradiction in Scripture. They will be attacking Scripture over this. And I was actually very surprised uh, how much I saw uh, online about people saying this is false teaching. Paul's a false teacher. I mean, this was all across the internet. So we have to be careful what it means. And all it simply means is Paul, I think, was also having a little tongue-in-cheek fun with him because he's kind of addressing the Cretans and one of their own says they're all liars. And he says, yeah, I agree with that. You kind of are all liars. Having a little fun with him, but he wasn't making any other statement beyond that. And so now this was pointed out actually back to Chrysostom who lived in the 4th and 5th centuries. He addressed it in this apparent contradiction as well uh, because of what happened. So Paul's command, this is the only command in verses 10 through 16, is to rebuke them sharply. Now some of us may shrink back and say, that doesn't sound very Christian or loving, rebuking them sharply. But indeed it is loving. It's very loving. Why does Paul call for a sharp rebuke? Listen to what it says, so they may be sound in faith. 
This is to bring about salvation, sound doctrine. That's a good thing. That's worth the pain. Rebuke them sharply. It looks like Paul's talking about believers who need to be corrected, but it could be unbelievers that were trying to get saved. But when you're dealing with something that's deeply cultural, Paul says it must be a sharp rebuke. What does that mean? It means that we have to be very direct and decisive. We want to convict them of their sin and convince them of the truth. It also has a sense of rebuking rigorously. In other words, don't make a half-hearted attempt to persuade them. Make a very good, well-thought-out argument. And don't leave any wiggle room. Leave no doubt in their minds. This is false teaching. We are to rebuke them sharply. And it's a loving thing when we do that. Again, it's to restore them to sound doctrine. This will take work because they had been devoting themselves to myths and false teaching. This was a pattern of life for them. It will take work to get them back on track. The Jewish myths were legends or fictitious tales added to the Old Testament history. Tales about Adam or Moses or Elijah or others. Many of them are found in, like I said, the apocryphal or pseudofigural writings of Judaism. The commands of people who reject the truth refer to various legalistic and aesthetic rules that people try to add to the gospel. These could be dietary restrictions or something to do with baptism or the Lord's Supper. We don't know in this case. But we do know that false teachers were trying to add to what Jesus taught and they were doing it for sordid gain. To make this point, Paul uses a maxim, to the pure all things are pure. And he's kind of going back to the words of Jesus in Mark 7. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that is going into him that can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered into the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from an outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Paul's making it clear that the extra rules being put on to believers by false teachers contradicts what Christ himself taught. This is very different from the traditional Jewish thought, which was, if you were ritually clean, If you touched anything unclean, it would defile you. You would go from clean to unclean. And Jesus says, no, when you are pure, you're going to make even those unclean unclean things pure by taking them in. This is not a license to sin. Can't do whatever we want, but we're no longer bound by Old Testament ceremonial laws that Jesus abolished. But now for the kicker. The end of verse 15 and verse 16. Paul says to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their problem is on the inside. Their minds, what they thought, their attitudes, those things are defiled. They're conscious. conscious. Two, that's their standards, their, their view, their morals. What they think is right and wrong, they were well wrong. They reject the gospel of Jesus Christ outright or they add to it, uh, defiling and polluting it. So to put it another way, both the thoughts and the internal moral compass are corrupt. So it doesn't matter what you do at that point. It won't make you clean. You're corrupt on the inside. Finally, the false teachers profess to know God, but their lack of relationship with God is evident by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And these are the words God uses in the Old Testament to describe adulterers. The false teachers who are adding to the work of Christ for salvation have instead set up a false God they now worship. How sad. They claim to know the living God, and yet they've set up a false God. Yet in all of this, let's see Paul's heart, and still to reach out by rebuking their error, rigorously persuading them of the truth. So why did God establish such rigorous requirements for elders? It's because their task demands it. Nonetheless, this is not just a commandment for elders. All of us are called to correct error, to confront false teachers, and to teach the truth. 
But first, we must know the truth. And that only comes by time in the Word and sitting under the teaching of godly leaders. So here are some takeaways from this passage. Number one, expect false teachers. Let's not miss that. There will be false teachers. We must not be surprised. While some will come with some outrageous ideas, we can spot those easily. Others will be more crafty. So we have to be on the lookout for false teachers. Number two, what's God's solution? God's solution to the problem of false teachers is to raise up many more good teachers. We need men and women both who are faithful defenders of the truth. More directly, we need biblically qualified elders who will defend the flock against false teachers. Finally, I remember hearing a sermon by John MacArthur 20-something years ago. I was living in Germany. And in his message, he mentions an old church in Germany. And he mentions the pulpit. And of course, in those old cathedral churches, the pulpit would be raised up and there'd be like a spiral staircase that you had to climb to get to the pulpit to preach. And what they had done, what the people had done in the banister of that old staircase leading up to the pulpit, they had carved in wild animals and beasts were all climbing the banister. They, they carved in demonic-looking figures, gargoyle-type things, all climbing up the banister. And the, the pastor, every time he went to preach, would see that. And at the very top of the banister, there was carved in top a little dog looking down and growling at all the wild beasts coming up. And it was to remind the pastor, your job is to protect this pulpit from false teachers and from the things of the world. It was a very stark reminder every time you climbed up into that pulpit, this is my job, is to protect and defend the truth. So fellow elders, we must be oh so committed and vigilant to protect the flock God has entrusted to us. Let us not waver in prayer, study, or commitment to what God has given to us. Let us pray. Deal with your flock, O most faithful shepherd, according to your promise. Drive away from us all the ravening wolves and deceitful false teachers, which are ministers of the enemy, masquerading as angels of light. Appoint and uphold faithful and diligent shepherds over your flock, so they will feed them from your holy word, lead godly, exemplary lives, and always conduct themselves according to your righteous commandments so that when the great high priest and chief shepherd shall appear, they may receive the incorruptible crown of glory. Amen.